I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending March 13th. In this episode, supercomputers. The U.S. Department of Energy just announced what will be the fastest supercomputer in the world by far. Supercomputing is a prestigious market and a highly competitive one for the companies that make processing chips. With the latest round of new supercomputers, there was a clear and somewhat unexpected winner. Also, holograms. They might be making a comeback, and we might be seeing them in our cars. We've got an interview with a company trying to make that happen. And hydrogen energy. Climate change has to be mitigated, and Europe is determined to lead the way. We'll discuss a new program recently announced by the European Commission to encourage the development of hydrogen energy. High-performance computing, holograms, and hydrogen energy. It's an alliterative trifecta. You ready? Here we go. The Top 500 is a list of the 500 most powerful supercomputers in the world. It's updated at least twice a year. For the last few years, the top two computers in the world have been operated by the U.S. Department of Energy. They are Summit and Sierra, which reside at Oak Ridge National Lab and Lawrence Livermore National Lab, respectively. Both operate at speeds measured in petaflops, a petaflop being one quadrillion floating point operations per second. During the past year, the DOE has been contracting for its next round of supercomputers. There will be three, one for Argonne National Laboratory, called Aurora, one for Oak Ridge, called Frontier, and one for Lawrence Livermore, called El Capitan. The three usher in what is being called the Exascale Era. All three will run at speeds measured in exaflops, or quintillions of floating point operations per second. From a system level perspective, the contracts were divided up between Cray and HPE, but since HPE just bought Cray in 2019, HPE will be building all three. Of equal interest is who will be providing the processors. Summit and Sierra, the current champs, incorporate a combination of CPUs from IBM and GPUs from NVIDIA. The CPUs and GPUs in Aurora will both be provided by Intel. The CPUs and GPUs in Frontier will both be provided by AMD. Last week, the DOE announced that the CPUs and GPUs in El Capitan will also be provided by AMD. Furthermore, AMD got the El Capitan deal by demonstrating it can make the supercomputer significantly faster than the other two in this same generation, Frontier and Aurora. Kevin Crewell, an analyst from Tirius Research, is an expert on processor technology. He's been on the podcast before, and we invited him back to talk about the latest announcement. I asked him, how big of a deal is this for AMD? Oh, it is a big deal for AMD. Uh, it's their second exascale supercomputer win. The first one, I think, was uh, Frontier. And um, now with these two wins, uh, you know, it's just AMD and Intel. Uh, Intel has the third win, and both companies have both the CPU and GPU part of that win. So uh, it's interesting that the uh, DOE has decided to pair companies that have both CPU and GPU together as an important uh, aspect of these design wins. 
in the case of AMD, one of the key uh, design aspects is that uh, the El Capitan will be assembled late 2021 and go operational in 2022. Uh, what AMD is going to provide is a coherent connection between the CPU and GPU, so they have a shared memory architecture. And to the uh, the team at Lawrence Livermore Lab, that was a, a very critical aspect of this design win. And it's something that's unique that AMD, and actually Intel as well, can do, that it's more difficult for uh, somebody that doesn't control both the CPU and GPU side of the equation. Well, let's start with the uh, people who don't control both sides of the equation. Um, the team that's kind of on the outs here is uh, IBM and and NVIDIA. Yes, uh, and, and this is a, a, a bit of a surprise. IBM has done well in the past with its power processor, mm-hmm. uh, and NVIDIA has right now uh, the most performant uh, GPU in high-performance com- uh, computing. Uh, so the fact that uh, both in, uh, IBM Power and uh, NVIDIA GPUs are out of the picture right now was, uh, I'm sure, a bit disappointed for both companies. But they, they don't control the total connectivity here. And I think that's one of the key things. But, you know, this, uh, this uh, El Capitan is a $600 million project. But not all of that money is going just to hardware. Um, a fair amount of it, tens of millions of dollars at least, are going to developing the software mm-hmm. that will run on the El Capitan supercomputer. And the uh, goal there is to take AMD's Rockham, ROC, small m, Rockham, uh, which is their version of CUDA, but it's an open source version, um, and bring that up to production, you know, a high quality level. And so... Uh, the Lawrence Livermore Lab people are invested heavily in building up AMD software story, which uh, to this this point had uh, pretty much trailed what NVIDIA was uh, doing with CUDA. Uh, so this uh, that's a real important part for AMD. I think it's going to help solidify a, a weak spot in AMD's uh, uh, overall strategy. Well, they came around really strong uh, when they first announced El Capitan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were talking about it being a 1.5 exaflops machine, and uh, they said that uh, in the meantime, as they were evaluating the the bids for processors and and GPUs, um, AMD convinced them that they'd be able to get from 1.5 exaflops, which is what they promised for Frontier, mm-hmm. uh, to two. Yes, and and that's apparently based on the the interconnect that uh, you were talking about earlier. Right. Uh, AMD did a couple of things. Uh, one is they pulled in a, 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 the roadmap for this specific project. Um, the CPU uh, is the, we use the fourth generation Zen core. Uh, and it's a product, it's a processor called Genoa. And it'll be manufactured in a five nanometer process. And AMD's uh, interconnect between the Genoa core and the, third generation of the GPUs, what is now uh, called the cDNA architecture, which is the compute mm-hmm. version of uh, AMD's GPUs. Um, and that's not a defined process node. It's an, an advanced process node, but they wouldn't be nailed down on it, which exactly it was. Mm. But with the Infinity Fabric, the third generation of that, uh, AMD will now have a coherent link between the CPUs and GPUs. Uh, and that was uh, that plus the performance 
that AMD promised, and it's you know four GPUs to one CPU, and the GPUs are providing most of the the flops there, and that architecture altogether uh, won the deal for uh, for AMD. Wow, interesting, interesting. And we had mentioned earlier before we got on this conversation, um, it's the interconnect that's becoming really important. It's kind of the reason why NVIDIA bought Mellanox. Well, the Mellanox uh, interconnect is uh, a rack-based interconnect that connects mm. racks together. The, the Infinity Fabric uh, is a scalable solution for AMD. It's, it, it can be used for on-chip networking. Mm. It can be used for chip-to-chip as in their chiplet strategy where the, uh, the the chips are interconnected on a package uh, and it can be extended to processor to processor interconnects so it's a very scalable fabric and it goes all the way from inside the chip to connecting multiple chips together and multiple packages together and that's best important factor i think for amd that's that's sort of the secret source of making this all happen I think the overall point that you now are taking a look at in order to get the extract the greatest amount of performance, um, looking at the the system holistically, mm-hmm. uh, processors and interconnect is becoming very important. That's yeah. that's uh, the AMD machines, the Intel machine too, right? Yeah, uh, in, uh, yeah. In, Intel is going to do is doing something very similar for their architecture as well. Nvidia has its NVLink which uh, would be the NVIDIA equivalent, and they can coherently connect multiple GPUs together, and NVLink can be connected to a power processor. Uh, but power processors are the only processors that uh, have an NVLink uh, connection at this point. All right. So we talked about El Capitan. That was kind of like the first half of AMD's news. Uh, they followed that announcement up about a week later with... Uh, some more stuff. Well, and... actually, the day after. Uh, yeah. Wednesday was the El Capitan news, and on Thursday was the Financial Analyst Day. Mm-hmm. And on the Financial Analyst Day, they kind of clarified some of the news from uh, the El Capitan launch. And, and to me, the most significant um, was a roadmap change on the GPU sides. So uh, typically, AMD's use their Radeon GPUs that used for consumer products and then use them and call uh, as Radeon Instinct processor for compute and machine learning. AMD is now going forward uh, is going to bifurcate the roadmap where uh, there'll be a separate consumer product, which they continue well continue to develop. That's the RDNA products, uh, Radeon DNA. And then a specific compute architecture, the cDNA. Uh, they'll add tensor cores in, They'll add more uh, reliability uh, and uh, uh, RAS features for uh, mm-hmm. for uh, enterprise class uh, compute, um, and then this Infinity Fabric uh, scalability, uh, which the third generation of Infinity Fabric can support up to connecting eight GPUs together. Um, so those features will be dedicated to the cDNA parts, and then the RDNA parts which is the consumer and uh, graphics and they use for a PlayStation and that. Uh, they're going to be adding later this year uh, both um, ray tracing um, and also scalable rendering. So later this year, they're, uh, they're expecting on the RDNA side, which is the consumer side, to have a uh, more massive uh, solution there, something that's more competitive with the higher-end NVIDIA solutions. So they're finally going to take on ARM. 
they're hoping to have this HPC technology percolate down to other applications that aren't HPC. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. One theme from the financial analyst uh, day was uh, AMD's focused on high-performance computing applications. And that, uh, and that includes the idea of heterogeneous or accelerated compute. And uh, to do that, it's a combination of CPUs plus GPUs together. And that's that's AMD's solution. They don't have FPGAs. They don't have a dedicated uh, machine learning ASIC. Um, and it's not to say that they don't at some point in time add that. They are in the art, uh, in the cDNA uh, parts, they will be adding uh, dedicated tensor cores uh, for tensor processing and AI. So there are definitely applications where AMD is looking at this. And the idea is that future workloads, even on scale-out servers, will include machine learning applications. And the ability to tie CPUs with accelerators will be a, a critical feature for many future workloads. And therefore, that's, uh, that's something where AMD wants to uh, be on the forefront of. So that's a differentiator for them. Yeah, so uh, it's kind of interesting, too. The DOE was talking about that uh uh, during their conference about El Capitan, um, I asked them about uh, about specific AI accelerators. They said, you know, the de facto accelerator is the GPU, but um, the guy who's running that program is in charge of both HPC and AI at uh, Lawrence Livermore. And he was saying, we're definitely looking at AI, um, AI workloads in the HPC context. And if it works out with the supercomputers that they have in place, they're able to scale out El Capitan to add those nodes in. Yeah. They, they said they're, uh, it's a, an experimental phase right now. They're trying to figure out how they can use AI processing, uh, machine learning to do a better job of uh, testing the nuclear stockpile. Yeah. So they're going to be doing some experiments with it. They haven't really gone down this path before. They've just been a pure simulation team you know, or a focus. So this is a, an area where they're, they're experimenting. And the uh, nice thing about uh, what they're doing is that uh, if they find it's useful, they can still use the GPUs for both compute and also for, uh, for AI uh, machine learning applications right. because AMD will have those dedicated tensor cores in there too. Absolutely wild stuff. Yeah. We'll have to see what happens with the uh, the next supercomputers from 2023 or 2024, right? Yep. It, uh, it's, it'll be another ball game. I mean, right now, this is a huge leap uh, forward for the uh, uh, supercomputer uh, capability in the United States government and the DOE. Um, it's kind of almost, a, it's almost uh, unimaginable what's the next big leap after this. They were saying that uh, this... El Capitan machine will be as powerful as the next 200 supercomputers combined. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just boggling, isn't it? It is definitely mind-boggling. Um, one interesting thing uh, that came out in the Q&A on that, that conference was the fact that the, the big El Capitan is dedicated to classified workloads. But there'll be a mini El Capitan, or they called it a clone, oh. that will be available for you know, applications that aren't classified. So that's where they talked about being able to do, use this architecture for your know, medical research and all that. It's, it's probably going to be on the clone El Capitan, not on the main one. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. All right. Uh, Kevin, thank you very much. 
No problem. Glad to be here. Aurora and Frontier are both expected to be delivered in 2021. El Capitan is scheduled for delivery in 2023. Hey, do you remember holography? It's a means of creating a three-dimensional image on a two-dimensional medium. The technique was invented in 1947 by Dennis Gabor, a Hungarian-British EE and physicist. He got the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics for it. Holography was a bit of a fad in the 1970s. The high point of the trend might have been the 1976 film Logan's Run. Logan's Run is an entertainingly bad film by today's standards. The script is laughable, the acting is uneven, and there are some truly silly costumes. But it included special effects which were incredibly innovative for the time. They included one of the first holograms ever seen on film an image of actor Michael York's head. Holography subsequently faded into obscurity, but not into disuse. In the year 2000, Bell Labs spun off a company called InPhase Technologies that was founded to create computer storage using holographic techniques. They were marvelously successful with the technology, but the products didn't quite catch on. InPhase assets were sold and resold, and in 2018, they ended up being purchased by Apple. Holography has also been used in head-up displays for fighter jets, notably the Typhoon, a pan-European jet also called the Eurofighter. Advanced military technology frequently gets repurposed for commercial applications, but not this time. The film used for the Eurofighter holographic display is too toxic for consumer products. Enter Ceres Holographics a startup based in St. Andrews, Scotland. The founder of the company shares some historical ties and technological expertise with InPhase, that Bell Labs spinoff. As Ceres Holographics tells the story, holography is suddenly back in vogue, as car OEMs have been looking for head-up displays, or HUDs, capable of projecting large, clear, bright images onto windshields. The key to adopting HUDs in the automotive market will be making HUD module size substantially smaller. Holography HUD is promising because it can substantially eliminate the bulky optics required by traditional HUDs. International editor Junko Yoshida recently traveled to Scotland to interview Andy Travers, CEO of Ceres Holographics. She found herself within driving range of a famous golf course. Of course, that was her first question. So we are here at St. Andrews. Why is this company in St. Andrews? Um, It's a long story, but effectively our CTO and founder, after a long and distinguished period in um, holographic R&D in the United States, Uh uh, he came back to set up a company called Series Imaging at the time, which was looking to um, commercialize his holographic knowledge that he'd developed, especially at a company called InPhase Technologies in Boulder, Colorado, that was working on uh, holographic storage applications uh, using a a new photopolymer material. Right. 
but he is originally from here? Uh, he's actually original, originally from uh, Heriot Watt, uh, Edinburgh area. Okay. Um, but he did settle down in uh, Ceres, the village yeah. of Ceres near St Andrews. And hence the name Ceres uh, Imaging was born uh, because he had some lab space that he got here on the, oh. on the university campus of St Andrews. Although not formally linked with the university, it was a good startup location. Oh, okay. So I'm he really here to learn something new here. Uh, at EE Times, we write about chips, semiconductors, silicon all the time, and we're trying to expand our coverage to really some new materials, something that opens up new innovation. And I'm kind of glammed onto this hologram thing, but um, I need Andy's help to define what exactly is hologram? Well, a hologram is basically a, a recording uh, of the interference pattern between two beams of light. Now, that could be the light coming from an object, yep. uh, which is then recorded. And then once you've recorded it, you could recreate that image of that object. Um, not quite Princess Leia like from Star Wars, <laughs> but effectively, it's kind of the same principle. So. Yeah, hologram is really about recording a pattern of light, somewhat similar to photography, but three-dimensional. Three-dimensional, right. Yeah. So okay. the other interesting thing is the hologram can be, uh, uh, you can actually capture uh, an optical function rather than, say, a, a hologram of an object. Okay. So basically you can make a hologram of a, of a lens or a mirror, and then basically you could capture that optical function in a very thin piece of holographic film. You are actually not using lens, but you can actually manipulate the light so that it actually acts like a lens. Yes, I mean, once once the function is recorded into the film, that thin film will act like, a, say, a thin, like a thick glass mirror. Sure. Or a metal mirror, for instance, but you've got none of the, 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 the disadvantages of a heavy glass component or a heavy metal component. Oh. You've got a very thin plastic material, which is less than 40 microns thick. Wow. And then you could put that inside some kind of glass carrier substrate like for wearable uh, glasses, a bit like Google Glass Planned or even Magic Leap if that kind of uh, thing is, is your business area. But you can also put it into uh, transportation head-up displays yeah. and also glass displays that basically are very lightweight but high functionality. All right. Well, you just rattled off uh, the, the potential future applications. But the truth of the matter is, for most reporters who have been covering this industry, hologram is always like technology uh, for five years from now. So tell me where the uh, hologram is already being used. And then let's go from there. Yeah. So interestingly, in... The military holograms have been used in head-up displays for fighter pilots so wow. that they can <laughs> obviously do navigation and operate weapons systems. Yeah. But even as uh, early as the 80s, a lot of automotive companies really dreamed of putting holograms in windshields to get better display technology, but there was never a really a suitable material. The materials were always hard to work with. Uh -huh. They couldn't be integrated into glass, 
and actually some of them are even poisonous, like dichromated gelatin. But um, a new film was developed out of the data storage business yep. that basically Bayer Materials licensed and took back to Leverkusen in Germany in 2006, mm -hmm. and they refined it uh, with our help, admittedly, with our, our founder who built a, a, a printing technique that could be used to help characterize this film. They really developed this film into a nice, environmentally friendly film yep. that's high performance. So this has really... It's a uh, the 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 has rekindled the dream of putting holograms into windshields, and so actually for the last five years we've yeah. been working with the automotive companies to perfect prototypes, and it now looks like the first prototype holographic based display systems could be in cars by probably two to three years time in twenty twenty three twenty four. Wow, but you know I have seen um, what the what you call. HUD, which is heads-up display unit, um, the, it, they've been demonstrating various trade shows. Um, it seems like uh, they're everywhere, and yet it's not really everywhere. <laughs> you know, it's, it's nice to see on the show floor. So what has been the major problems of the conventional methodology of making or developing uh, today's HUD? Yeah. So, so there's, there was two major problems, really. The actual performance of the conventional uh, plastic mirror-based systems was that the, 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 the performance wasn't that good. The image distance was maybe two meters in front of the windshield, and the field of view was very limited. Plus, the size of the unit was also pretty big, and so it couldn't really go in anything but the premium cars. Ah. With the holographic film, you now can put a lot of optical power in the windshield, so that means you can have wider field of view, big image distance, and that's now enabling the possibility of what they class as augmented reality head-up display, so that you can now see three lanes of information in front of you as you drive down the freeway. So this now means that the value proposition yeah. for the driver experience is a lot higher. Yeah. And also the safety and the comfort factor for the OEMs is really pushing them to think about putting that technology in as standard rather than an option that nobody really takes yeah, because right. it it's wasn't that compelling, it's not bright enough. And holography means that the displays can be a lot brighter in sunlight for the same kind of size of unit because oh. the hologram gives a lot of optical efficiency to the system. Yeah. Tell me the, uh, you, you mentioned size. Tell me the difference of the volume of this unit you're referring to. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, in CES, an automotive tier one supplier built a 12 by six field of view, mm -hmm. seven and a half meter head up display system. Mm -hmm. And the volume of that, the physical size of the projector was about 25 to 30 liters. Wow. So basically with a hologram in the windshield now, you can take the size of that unit down to under 10 liters. So that makes it now possible to deliver high performance systems for a much smaller package size and get them in real cars. Right. I think also the idea of transparent display appeals to uh, a lot of people, not just car companies, but I think as a user, it's kind of cool, right? But I think, uh, can you explain that the, the way to install this, um, you know, holographic-based uh, uh, technology, you actually put 
the film in between the glasses, uh, the windshield glasses. Can you explain that a little bit? <clears throat> yeah, well, the, the photopolymer itself is very flexible, but it's not that uh, robust. It wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't withstand somebody peeling it off or scratching <laughs> it so, so while you're cleaning the inside of your car. So, yeah, right. so ultimately, the, the, the holographic film has to be encapsulated between the standard kind of windshield structure of uh, two pieces of, say, three millimeter glass. And then the holographic film itself is then in between the, the PVB layer, which is the, the stuff in between the glass that gives you the nice safety function. So, so in fact, the, the integration process for the film is a chemistry process. Uh. So that means you, we really have to work with the windshield manufacturers and to, de to develop a, a true integratable film stack that, so that the photopolymer is put in the right place to do the job but also to protect it from being attacked by the chemicals in the, in the lamination process when you make these windshields. All right. I think let's go to get back to what you just started talking about in the earl in earlier that um, the potential applications of this technology because as you mentioned that this is a piece of film that they're using right um, where you mentioned uh, smart glasses mm -hmm. can you explain um, uh, how that works and how this could be applied to such uh, portable wearable systems? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, one of the key things we've got at, at Series is the ability to digitally design and master, uh, if you like, the golden holograms. So that allows us to uh, really create uh, very specific components for all sorts of applications, including, you know, not just car driver yeah. applications, but side windows for uh, rear sitting passengers mm -hmm. and we can program it to work off-axis. Now that off-axis capability is actually quite useful for wearables as well because... What facts? You said all facts? Off-axis. Ah, okay. So basically okay. the geometry that of which the, the light can be input and then output does not have to be symmetrical. Ah, okay. uh, you could basically program it to output light uh, a programmed angle and that's very useful to make more compact op optical systems and basically replacing glass optics and some of the wearable solutions with holographic films. So that would be one application for the technology, not only the material, but our mastering capability uh, and the replication capabilities to make these replacements for standard uh, glass optics and wearables. All right, my last question. What would be on the top of your mind to um, bring your technology to the masses and what what specific problems or specific challenges do you need to solve? Uh, well, the next one to two years are, are really focused on working with our uh, windshield and interlayer integration partners and also actually the manufacturers of the film Covestro to get a real integratable stack and a process proven. Um, yep. That's in parallel with us. We're, we're, we've already got a large European funding uh, award to build the first prototype production machine. Mm -hmm. That enables us to copy any master for any particular uh, car model into large pieces of film that can then be integrated into the windshield. So those are the, those are the two major things in terms of getting the first 
products commercialized and yep. into cars. And then the second thing will be for the augmented reality products is really seeing the advances in uh, laser diode automotive qualification and uh, working with the micro display companies to make sure that their, their display technology for the picture generating unit, the PGU in the HUD units, is really uh, is all automotive qualified. So those, those are, the, those are the, the key challenges that uh, we all face at the moment. All right. Thank you very much. Now, you're probably wondering why we didn't mention the most famous example of holography ever, hologram entertainment. Starting about 10 years ago, hologrammatic performances by dead pop stars started popping up. Revived artists included Roy Arbison, Tupac, Michael Jackson, and Ronnie James Dio. Even though these are all called holograms, and even though some of the companies resurrecting these pop stars have some version of the word hologram in their names, technologically, none of them are true holograms. I know, disappointing. Automakers outside the United States, including BMW, Hyundai, and Toyota, have been experimenting with hydrogen technology. This week, the European Union announced a new program to develop hydrogen energy technology. The Clean Hydrogen Alliance builds on a decade's worth of European research into hydrogen power, including the work of the Fuel Cells and Hydrogen Joint Undertaking, a public-private partnership between the European Union, Europe's fuel cell and hydrogen industry, and research organizations. Most importantly, adopting clean hydrogen power is expected to be a means to manage carbon emissions and mitigate climate change. Also, innovating a new clean energy approach could help European companies surpass competitors, notably competitors in the United States. And there's a third consideration as well. Nous devons aussi réguler, organiser et structurer l'activité sociale, technologique, industrielle. We're listening to Thierry Breton. European Commissioner for Internal Market and Services, who introduced the program. He explained that the Clean Hydrogen Alliance, quote, will be strategically important for energy independence and the future of Europe, unquote. Europe expects that adding yet another renewable energy option will help its member countries become more energy independent. We wanted to find out how hydrogen energy works and what the advantages and disadvantages could be. Editor Maurizio De Paolo Emilio writes for EE Times and also edits our sister publication, Power Electronic News. Junko caught up with him earlier this week. So you being a technology editor, Maurizio, please explain to me how hydrogen-powered cars work. Yes, so hydrogen car uh, convert chemical energy into mechanical one. So, because we need to move the, the car, it's important to have mechanical energy. So, the, uh, this type of vehicle is called full cell electrical vehicle. And Fuel cell, yes. right. And yeah. in uh, this year, in the recent years, as you told, has seen more attention by manufacturers to produce some hydrogen uh, cars. Mm. So, the key element is full cells. Full cells uh, receive two incoming flows. One is hydrogen from the negative pole and another one is oxygen from the positive pole. The catalyst uh, containing in the hydrogen engine causes the electrons 
to separate from the nucleus, the small part of the atom. And this uh, reaction generates electricity. So the electrons move uh, to the positive pole and uh, the other pole, and then uh, we can use to recharge the battery to move the, uh, the motor. The union of hydrogen and uh, oxygen produce uh, a chemical reaction with the a final product called uh, the famous water. So it's a water yeah. vapor. And this, and, uh, this is uh, released into the atmosphere. So that's a really the beauty of uh, the hydrogen-powered cars because the byproduct or the waste products coming out of these cars are just uh, vapor, as you said. It's yes. water. Yes, it's water, right. yes. It's the only, yes, uh, waste product. The problem will be based on the electrical part just uh, mm -hmm. to manage the current because the current generated in the fall cells can uh, power the vehicle or charge a battery. Battery is more than a classic uh, car that uh, acts uh, an uh, intermediate accumulator. So that will be more or less the same for hybrid vehicles because uh, hydrogen-powered vehicles also use energy harvesting to recharge the battery, for example, the braking energy. Right. So let's get back to the topic of the day is that it was uh, the you know European Commission um, made an announcement that the hydrogen is environmentally friendly. Therefore, they are going to invest in building the infrastructure for uh, that's necessary for hydrogen-powered cars. You know, that sounds all good, right? They use, they, they call it clean hydrogen. You know, it's just like, just as though that mm -hmm. any marketers of the coal industry wants to call clean coal, even though such clean coal doesn't exist. Coal is not clean by nature. But so what I'm getting at here is that the, as you wrote in your story, the overall environmental impact of hydrogen mobility, it actually depends on the energy source used to produce hydrogen, correct? Yes, correct. Hydrogen is the most element in the in the natural, in the universe, but not in the natural form. Not so, in the natural form, yes. okay, yeah. For these uh, uh, reasons, it uh, is not exactly a renewable sources and must be produced with uh, some system, with different systems. Right. Therefore, right. the the whole environmental impact of hydrogen mobility depends on the energy source used to produce hydrogen, to produce it. Right. So can we use solar energy, for example, to produce hydrogen? Yes. If you use uh, solar energy, renewable energy sources to produce uh, hydrogen, the environmental impact is, uh, is low, is minimal. Right. If uh, fossil sources are used, the impact is uh, is much higher is uh, is higher is higher so where are we today in terms of uh, are we expecting the industry to use renewable energy to create hydrogen i guess that we must no yes we must because uh, we must improve the environmental impact in general and we must use uh, uh, renewable energy sources to produce uh, hydrogen, but to produce uh, everything. So if you could sum up the advantages mm -hmm. and disadvantages of hydrogen fueling, that would be very helpful. Yeah, so the advantage is uh, a maximum re reduction of emission because uh, we have uh, the water, is only ah, the water. Okay, right. So, but only 
speed of refueling. Uh, it's very, very, very fast. But there are other problems in this case, but it's very fast in any case. So the uh, fueling fast is very good because EV, actually, we, 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 we have the faster version, but yes. it still takes time to refuel in a fuel station, right? So yes. that's, that's, that's a good point. But what are the problems you're about to say? Yeah. So the problem is uh, infrastructure to mm. refuel. So the refueling infrastructure would require significant uh, inve economic investments. So you need uh, to improve the technology and the security to have uh, a distributor of hydrogen. Autonomy, for example, is a good uh, advantage for hydrogen. What do you mean autonomy in this case? Autonomy, uh, when you, you have a, a car, you would need to to run for a lot of kilometers. And ah. in this case, uh, autonomy uh, for hydrogen, just for the same level respect to the uh, normal car, is mm -hmm. a, a good value. So it's great. I see. So without the need for refuel, it can run as long as the conventional cars? Yes, but you cannot re recharge anywhere because... Uh, Many pro many problems with the uh, infrastructure are due to the difficult storage of yes. hydrogen. Hydrogen, that's a big that's a big issue. Yes, right. and right. Uh, today we can count uh, very uh, few distributors of uh, uh, hydrogen, and th that is a, a good problem. So it's not it's not easy problem. It's a good problem. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. So therefore you do need some sort of public funding to help this industry get started. Yes, I think that we, we should uh, do a lot of R&D project. We should invest in, uh, in hydrogen just to understand how to reduce the, the, the economic uh, uh, problem for infrastructure, yeah. for the uh, storage uh, of hydrogen, to produce hydrogen by using uh, renewable sources and so on. Right. In this case, when we we can uh, have these problems uh, under control, so we can have a good hydrogen cars. I see. So the idea of hydrogen vehicles has been around for a long time, but you believe that it still needs to have some sort of R&D going in order to get the maximum um, out of uh, the, uh, the the whole project, hydrogen, hydrogen vehicles, right? So in in the market, yeah. we ha we have some uh, hydrogen cars. So yeah, uh, right. Yeah, we already have like you mentioned a, a couple of uh, vehicles in your story. Yeah, uh, BMW, for example, or Hyundai, and and so, and so on. Yeah, but uh, as I told, we have to resolve some problems before yeah. to to increase the, the, the production of hydrogen cars. In fact, yeah. many manufacturers are studying other solutions in the immobility. So they are investing a lot in the immobility in this case. Immobility meaning yeah, the electric electrical vehicles, yes. electrical, yeah. But this Europe th sees its opportunity to leapfrog the EV with hydrogen. Yes. But maybe not, maybe not leapfrog maybe catch up, right? <laughs> yes, I agree. Yes, correct. <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, thank you so much for your time, Maurizio. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Junko. My pleasure. Yet another one of our colleagues, Anne-Francoise Pellet, 
wrote up the story on the new initiative for EE Times Europe. You'll find a link to that story on the podcast webpage. And speaking of Roy Orbison, it's time for our weekly journey into the past, where we celebrate notable moments in electronics history. On March 10th in 1989, the sun belched a billion-ton cloud of gas that took up a volume of space big enough to fit 36 Earths, and it was aimed right at us. The solar flare and coronal mass ejection, of course, coronal mass ejection is shortened to CME, they almost instantly caused interference with shortwave radio. Two days later, the vast cloud of plasma began washing over the Earth, causing a geomagnetic storm in the atmosphere that included auroras that could be detected as far south as Cuba. The storm created currents that flowed through North America. They tripped safety systems that led to a crash of the Hydro-Quebec electric grid. Millions of people in Canada lost power, and there were hundreds of power-related problems reported in the United States. The eruption also disrupted satellites. NASA said several were sent tumbling out of control. On March 6th in 1869, Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev published a textbook on chemistry that included the first periodic table of the elements. As he tried to fit the known elements into a table ranked by their atomic weights, he noticed a pattern. Elements in the same groups shared similar properties. Mendeleev was the first person to detect the periodicity of the elements. Based on his observations, he actually left some spaces in his table where he expected elements yet to be discovered would fit. Correctly, it turned out. With a few of them, he even correctly deduced some of their physical properties. And don't get us started on aluminum versus aluminium. Okay, that is your weekly briefing for the week ending March 13th. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you back next Friday with our next episode. The weekly briefing is available via Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. But if you get there via our website at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript, links to the stories we refer to, and other goodies. And if you like what you've heard, share the podcast with your co-workers and friends. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.